Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Human Rights Watch recently released a report on police abuses in Uzbekistan at the start of July when there were protests in the Republic of Karakal, Pakistan over proposed changes to the Uzbek constitution that would have stripped Karakal, Pakistan of its constitutional recognition as a sovereign administrative entity. Violence broke out when police moved to disperse the protesters and at least 21 people were killed. More than 500 were arrested. Uzbek authorities created what they called an independent commission to investigate the incident, but the commission has not released much information more than four months after it started its work. What's happening with the investigation? And what does Uzbekistan's history tell us about investigations and the treatment of ethnic minorities? To discuss all this, I am joined by Mira Rietman, a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch, and Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Thank you both for joining me. And I also want to mention that we did try to have someone from Karakal, Pakistan on the program, but unfortunately that was not possible for this program. But we will have representatives of the Karakal, Pak community on the show in the near future. Steve, you know, if I, I could start with you, and, and I always put you on the hot seat, I know this, but can you give us a very brief summary of, of the background of, of what led to the protests in Karakal, Pakistan? Sure. Well, the government somewhat haphazardly announced that there would be a process of, uh, of a new constitution being introduced and that the draft amendments that were released in late June, I believe, omitted references to Karakal, Pakistan's sovereign status. Uh, they omitted, basically deleted a provision that, would, that allows for, by, by process of referendum, for the Autonomous Republic of Karakal, Pakistan to secede or, or remove itself from Republic of Uzbekistan. Again, that sort of conjures up the, the complicated uh, interrelationship in a way between Karakal Pakistan and Uzbekistan or Karakal Pakistan status, which since 1993 has been considered a sovereign republic within the Republic of Uzbekistan. So the removal of these provisions, which weren't discussed with the population broadly in Karakal Pakistan or in general in Uzbekistan, immediately led to questions. There were petitions being circulated, requests from activists, lawyers, journalists in Karakal Pakistan to discuss these things. And there were announcements made by various activists to hold peaceful protests early in July, July 5th, I believe. And pretty quickly, the Uzbek authorities moved in and detained uh, some of the key activists that were that 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 had proposed these these protests, and that led to uh, protests on July first and July second, which then really bloomed very quickly into thousands of people protesting peacefully on the streets uh, in Karakal, Pakistan, Nukus, the capital of Karakal, Pakistan, but also in other cities, and shortly thereafter, authorities used lethal force, which is really expertly laid out in the recent report from Human Rights Watch. And we saw lethal force used officially. The figures were that 21 people died, 243, I believe, injured, and many more detained. Um, Some independent NGOs, or I should say other groups that have conducted investigations like Vitaly Panamaryov from Memorial put the death toll a little bit higher, perhaps closer to 40. We don't quite know that hasn't really, there hasn't been an opportunity, of course, we're going to talk about that to investigate on the ground in that way. But at least we know 21 deaths, 
That includes, I think, four police officers. And to date, the government, which we'll also discuss, has announced this parliamentary commission and also its own investigations from the prosecutor general's office. There hasn't been much disclosed about the investigation beyond releases of some of the people suspected of being involved in in what they call mass rioting. So we don't know of any police officers actually to date that have been detained. We don't know much at all really about the official version of events. The government says the, the investigation is still ongoing. It hasn't been completed and they won't release that information until it's completed. So we're really in a sort of moment of limbo or suspended animation um, waiting to hear what the results of this official investigation, or I should say the two investigations, turn out to be. So it's been a moment where the country was plunged into unprecedented protests, probably the largest in its history. These may have actually been larger than the Andijan protests of 2005. And I should also mention that President Mirzoyev quickly climbed down from those proposed amendments or proposed changes and said that there would be no, that provision would, would not be deleted from the new constitution but we don't know in fact we're coming up pretty soon on constitution day in in december and there was some discussion that the 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 constitutional changes would actually be introduced by now that there would be this referendum but that hasn't happened so we're we're sort of waiting to see what comes next okay great thank you okay and that brings me mira you know, Steve mentioned that, that the police really don't seem to have figured in the very little bit of information that we have about this investigation. The police don't seem to have figured very largely. Actually, I don't even remember them being mentioned at all in any of the information they had. You know, images that we got in, in the hours after the violence started and in the days after it after it ended showed some, some serious wounds. I know this is the, the subject of your report is actually what the police actions were. Um, so could you could explain, you know, Steve already started by saying these were peaceful protests that, that broke out. Now, what happened? Can you take us into what happened when the police decided they were going to resort to uh, more aggressive tactics to disperse the crowd? Hello, I'm very sorry about that. I don't well, know this, this kind of stuff happens when you're connecting with Central Asia. OK, you know, you were just telling us that, that when they were using these these grenades, uh, and and stun grenades and flash grenades and stuff that the the video that you had got, been reviewing, um, at least a lot of it showed that those protesters really didn't represent a threat to the life or or health of uh, or of law mm-hmm. enforcement officers. Can you pick the the law enforcement? Okay, so I'll jump back into what I was saying there. Um, I also uh, I went on to say that uh, we documented the use of heavy projected projected grenades, which is a type of grenade that's about ten times the weight of those stun grenades uh, or flash grenades that I spoke about earlier. Um, and uh, one man killed uh, during the Karakalpak protests appears to have been hit in the chest with this type of grenade. We found uh, one person who uh, whose wound uh, that we saw in in the video and uh, photograph material that we had um, appears uh, consistent with a gunshot injury. Um, you know, the authorities, Uzbek authorities, have denied that they used live fire, but you know that's that's uh, contradicted by the evidence that that we have. Um, we also uh, saw that Uzbek security forces were equipped with Kalashnikov pattern rifles during the protests. We identified. Uh, several cases, seven cases uh, in which people uh, sustained or and probably died 
from severe tissue damage that was consistent with trauma caused by explosives. So again, the sort of impact um, with the body that causes sort of uh, penetrating lacerations and, and can also cause loss the loss of large portions of flesh. Flesh. You were you referenced some of these horrific images that were circulating um, around the time and and somewhat after also because uh, at the time uh, there was an internet blockage uh, in Karakal, Pakistan, and, and it was actually very difficult um, to get information out of of uh, uh, Uzbekistan or in this case Karakal, Pakistan, about what was going on because of that that blockage. So in total, we found uh, 38 protesters who had either been killed, wounded, or beaten during the July protests, and and this use of you know the inappropriate uses uh, use of small arms and lethal weapons that that helped that contributed to the the, the death of these 21 people that have been registered and the many many that were wounded some uh, who sustained very uh, serious injuries. Thank you very much. Um, my next question, and, and Bira, I'll ask you this first. Well, I'll ask you, and then I'll get to Steve with another question. But can you tell me a little bit about who who is on this commission um, that is investigating what happened on July 1st and July 2nd in Karakal, Pakistan? Sure. Um, the, the commission was set up on uh, July 15th, uh, so about two weeks after the events themselves. And you know, it was an important step by authorities to 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 uh, set up a commission that was tasked with looking at human rights violations, um, and it included the involvement of of two civil society representatives. It's uh, there's also senators um, and other government officials, and it's headed by the uh, Uzbekistan ombudswoman Feruza Eshmatova. But you know, it's it's there are also significant problems with it. There's there's not a lot of transparency about its mandate. The scope of its investigation. Um, it's not clear if they're looking into uh, the matters of deaths and severe injuries that occurred or the actions taken by security forces. They've said that they're going to produce a report, um, but we don't know the timeline for their investigation and, and when that report is likely to be published, or in fact, then what what uh, will be done with the findings in that report, if that's going to lead to um, prosecutions, if that's actionable information or not. Um, so there's there are still serious concerns about the independence of this commission, especially given uh, you know the, what it's uh, the members of the commission and, and and their position in government, a lot of them. Um, and so there's still you know one of our recommendations to come out of our our report is to to call for an independent investigation and one that's not tasked with the vague sort of approach of looking at human rights violations, but one that is going to set out a record of what happened with a view of holding those responsible for, um, you know, the actions that led to the 21 deaths and and those uh, serious injuries that that we documented, we know about. And so we hope that that, that call, um, others have made a call for independent investigation. Um, the, the U.S. government has made that call. The European Union has made that call. The Office of the High Commission for Human Rights has made a call for an independent investigation. Um, and you know we've said this before, but it's consistent to do so with Uzbekistan's stated you know, commitment to human rights and, and it's uh, indeed its obligations under international human rights law to hold perpetrators uh, of these sorts of crimes accountable. Um, so you know we're the, the commission is you know it's, it's the work of its commission is ongoing, but you know there's still a lot of questions about what will come of that investigation. Great. Uh, thank you. Um, Steve, one, I want you to comment a little bit about what, what the commission has revealed to the 
to us uh, since they started their work. But I also was wondering if you could uh, comment a, a little bit about Mr. Uh, Tajimuratov and, and uh, uh, Lola Gul uh, Kalihanova. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I agree completely with everything Mira just said about the, the problematic nature of the Parliamentary Commission and members of Uzbek's independent civil society have commented uh, since the start of this that, that they're, they're not comfortable. There's, there's an illegitimacy about this process in the sense that you have one of the politicians on the commission is the most, probably the most outspoken member of the commission, Alishar Kadyrov, known often for making quite boisterous populist statements said very early on that we don't believe in the sovereign status of Karakalpakstan to begin with, which I think really injected, certainly for many Karakalpaks, a sense that this was not going to be, that this was somewhat politicized. So I, it baffled me as to why he would be included uh, alongside some of the other people. And of course, you have other, other members like the ombudsman for the regional ombudsman representative from Karakalpakstan, who works for the uh, the national ombudswoman Feruza Ishmatova, um, of course. So it's it's good that you have some Karakalpak voices, but you don't have independent society activists like Azimbay Atanyazov. He was recently interviewed by the Voice of America uh, by Nabahore Mamaba when she was there in Karakalpakstan, and he said very clearly, "Why is the government so reluctant to invite independent and international experts? We have issues. We know that these deaths were violent." These protests were there for all to see, and it requires a, an open, difficult conversation between society and the government. And I thought his very clear-eyed advice is something we need to listen to, and, and one hopes that the government would do that. Um, you asked me about what, what has been revealed and what they've done. Well, they did have a, a hand in interviewing many of the witnesses and some of the people detained, and it's still a little bit unclear to me the relationship between the prosecutor general's office and the parliamentary commission and who makes what decisions. But um, at least we know from social media that the parliamentary commission and Ms. Eshmatova were involved in the release, at least to home arrest uh, of, of around a hundred people. I also know that some of the members of the commission were able to interview the alleged ringleader, as they call him, Daulet Tajimuratov, the journalist, one of the people that initially wanted to, that called for peaceful meetings peaceful demonstrations about the constitutional amendments. They met with him, but again, troublingly, what they what they showed on social media was a picture from behind showing the back of his head um, speaking with the commission members. Now, some of them uh, have said in, 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 in conversations that they believe that actually the Western community, the international community is somehow mischaracterizing the intentions of some of the protesters, including Tajimuratov, sort of uh, saying that He's, he's, he's not as much of an angel as, as you in the human rights community like to say. So I've been, again, what it does is it raises a lot of questions about the process. The other thing is, even though it's certainly good that some of these people have been released, we don't know the final status, whether or not they're still facing charges. I believe some of them are. And so therefore, there's a lot of due process considerations. If you're going to tweet, if you're going to post photographs of meetings with defendants, well, then why is there such a deafening silence about the police officers that they are should be investigating for their use of excessive force? I think that imbalance has really come through, and it, it again it, it undermines the claims that we hear that that they're waiting to weigh in until the completion of the investigation. Obviously, this is a very strategic deployment of social media. Bruce, what was the other question? Um, 
you no, I was just beginning. About, uh, I was just wondering about you know the fate of well you you've talked a little bit about Talat. Oh yes. Tajim, yeah. Well, l- let me just mention that relatives of Tajim Muratov. Uh, have been speaking out, um, voicing a lot of concern, despite the fact that we know now that he's met with the commission. We still don't know very much about his conditions. There's, there were serious concerns raised about torture, tr- trials closed. We still don't know much about the allegations, although the prosecutor general's office made an announcement that they're applying extremism charges or uh, anti-constitutional activity or more precisely attempts to overthrow the constitutional order of Uzbekistan in regards to him. I believe that those charges have been mentioned in relation to Laligul Khalikhanova, a journalist who we don't precisely know, we don't know her whereabouts. And I think that's also very troubling. And, and her case was raised, for example, um, very early on by the Committee to Protect Journalists. So it's, it's concerning. We don't know the, the fate and the conditions. And I think the government now, enough time has passed that, that there are some real concerns and uh, I'm I'm personally also very troubled by the use of those specific charges because again, it conjures up a legacy that we know well from Uzbekistan's history, where terrorism and extremism charges are used to silence critics or perceived critics of of the government, and that's that's something that should have changed by now. Uh, Mira, do you want to add anything to that before we hit the halfway point? Yeah, if I yeah, could, please. if we could pick up uh, just on what Steve has been saying uh, and alluding to is just a, a real lack of transparency about where things stand with respect to the authorities' investigation as well as the commission's investigation. So um, very early on, I think it was July 4th, the prosecutor general's office announced that 516 people had been arrested. As Steve said, we know that over 100, I think it's 107, have been released, but there has been no a formal announcement on the part of the authorities as to uh, the status of these other people. Are they still in detention? Have they been released? Are they facing charges? And that lack of information is very unsettling. You know, there was a very, the, the, the events were very consequential and, and, and uh, you know, people died and, and the lack of information flow about the actions of authorities to hold people accountable for that loss of life and those serious injuries is, you know, we would want more from Uzbekistan in a, in a situation like this. Um, and I think, you know, we can also say that with respect to the commission that, um, you know, there, there has been strategic use of social media, but overall there is a lack of transparency about its actions and, and the outcome. And I think that it would be great if, you know, there would be a, a very clear update, you know, even releasing the names of the people who died. We still don't know the names of the people who died. So without that information, it's just so many questions and so much uncertainty. Um, and that is not to the authorities' benefit here. That does not play, you know, it, it just, um, to the contrary, it undermines whatever it is that they're trying to do here. And it would be very, you know, uh, be worthwhile to take a moment and actually report back to the people who were affected, who are looking for accountability, who are looking for answers on the status of the investigation, including whether indeed any security officers uh, are being investigated for the loss of life. Thank you. And, uh, we have reached the halfway point of the discussion, so it's time for me to remind that this is the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. And I'm Bruce Benier, the host of the show, and our topic today is the recent report released by Human Rights Watch on the violence in Karapalpakstan last July, and more broadly, the Uzbek government's 
history of, of treatment of ethnic minorities and, and what their previous investigations of, of violent acts of violence were like. Uh, joining me for this discussion are uh, Steve Sperdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Mira Rietman, a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. Thank you both again for being on the program. And let's let's look at some of the, the past and uh, take a look at some of the history of some of this stuff. I know you both have been following Uzbekistan for a long time. Mira, actually, I'll start with you. This is supposed to be new Yengi Uzbekistan, right? New Uzbekistan. We have Mirzuev as president. He's made all these promises that the business was going to be, everything was going to be different in Uzbekistan than it was under his predecessor. Have you noticed anything different about this investigation that you uh, didn't see in previous investigations of alleged religious extremists or, you know, even, uh, we'll get to Andijan in a minute too, but uh, what is this, is this investigation different than the ones you remember from the Karimov era? Well, I, I think it is important to recognize that there were, so yes, to some degree, indeed, there, there are notable differences. There were journalists on the ground quite soon after the events took place. Uh, Joanna Lillis, uh, who we know, um, was there in the days after and, and was able to report um, from, from Nukus. Um, I think that's important to recognize. There was the creation of this commission that, who's, that was tasked with looking at, at human rights violations. I don't recall that such a commission um, was ever formed in the past to look at uh, a situation where there was such serious, or let's say specifically with respect to Andijan, and there there was backtracking, right, quite quickly in terms of the what set off the grievances and and led to the protests. So you know, tacit acknowledgement that there was some missteps. We saw President Mirzioyev on I think July fourth uh, say publicly that you know if there were illegal actions on the part of law enforcement that they should that those should be I found the the quote here that they should be analyzed and if they used force incorrectly. They should be held criminal, uh, criminally liable. Um, so, you know, those statements are, are very important to hear. And what remains to be seen now is if any of these, any of these uh, sort of um, developments or, or incidents that I described in terms of being a little bit more open or, or cognizant of the human rights violations took place are going to lead to any uh, to lead to accountability in the end. Um, and that's where we have yet to see meaningful actions on the part of the authorities. So right now, there have been some initial steps. There's been some rhetoric that is is important to hear. But now we need to give meaning to that rhetoric. Um, and, and we need to see the outcome of this commission's work to see whether or not that's going to lead to security forces in particular being held accountable if there's going to be an investigation into any allegations of ill treatment and torture. Um, and in that regard, there isn't, you know, so far, we haven't seen anything that is very reassuring um, that we'll see the, that kind of outcome. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, Steve, uh, you know, obviously you've been, you, again, you've been watching Uzbekistan for a long time. Do you, uh, as far as due process, access to lawyers, courtroom hearings, uh, you know, that we're told anyway by this commission that, that everyone has access to a lawyer, uh, but we don't actually get to speak, to speak with any of the lawyers, or I haven't seen any comments from any of these lawyers, or and certainly not the defendants. And, and we, we see the trial processes are going on, but we don't know anything about them. Is that familiar? <laughs> Is it familiar? Oh yes. Um, I think. I think yes. That's that's always been a problem with a lot of politically motivated trials in Uzbekistan. There's a phrase called "pocket lawyers," karmanli advokati in Russian, which means you know defense lawyers that are basically stand-ins 
or have been, you know, instructed by authorities not to rock the boat and to basically go along with the charges that are brought against defendants. I think that's a real concern. Of course, we know that, again, six years into the reform process, I was just on a a recent conversation with uh, leading members of the legal profession who said that for, you know, unexplained reasons, many of these common sense proposals to inject more freedom and 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 more transparency in in into the the independent bar have been stalled. Um, there have been you know pending proposals to reform the code of, of the legal profession or the law on on advocacy for a long time, which haven't been brought through to fruition. And that's kind of the story on several pieces of the reform agenda when it comes to NGOs, when it comes to to m- many areas we can get into. But I think when it comes to due process. That's a core concern. And, and again, as I mentioned, the use of those charges, Article 159, uh, Article 244, these are charges we know so well. The reason we know them so well is because the previous president, who in power for 27 years, Islam Karimov, used them basically from the moment he became president. It became really part of the DNA, it became uh, almost a central guiding principle of governance, was to silence, silence criticism in this way. And we still know that there are a large number of people in Uzbekistan's prisons. We don't know exactly how many. We have, you know, we did a recent report about this at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom um, just last year. And so, adding to that group a new group of Karakal Pakistan cases, I think, again, is troubling. It's not the direction that we'd like to see this go in. Um, there should be an open conversation. There should be. It's good that there's a parliamentary commission, and I think it's great that Mira found that statement from July fourth about the that the president made, um, which also heartened me at the time. I thought this is this is different. This is different than two thousand five and Andi John. But unfortunately, the rhetoric since that time has been more in the direction. And again, I'm referencing again the the on the ground reporting that Nabuhori Mamava did recently when she met with Karakalpak officials was this constant rhetoric that this was all caused by external forces. This was caused by you know, Karakalpaks abroad and, and most directly in Kazakhstan. And that is exactly the type of rhetoric that we heard also at the time of Andijan, which I think is just an old, tired, and evidence-free claim. Okay, thank you for, for that. And, um, you know, you mentioned the Karakalpaks in Kazakhstan. Mira, at the moment, anyway, you're in Kazakhstan. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the Karakalpaks that have been detained in Kazakhstan? Yeah. The, so over, a, I mean, I can't remember the most recent arrest, but starting um, in mid-September, five diaspora Karakalpaks have been arrested in Almaty. The last one who was arrested, uh, Tulebek uh, Yoldashova, I can't remember exactly where she was arrested. Do you, do you recall, Bruce? It was up on the Russian-Kazakh border. It was on, on the border. Okay. Um, so all of them, uh, as far as we know, are, are wanted in, it seems to be in connection so, uh, with, with the Kharkov-Pakistan events with, for alleged offenses against the state. They, there's Koshkabai Tori Muratov, who's a, a dissident blogger. There's Jean Geldi Jaksim Bietov, who's an opposition figure. Um, they were the first two to be picked up. Then there was Raisa Hudaybergenova, who's a cardiologist. Uh, she was detained at her workplace a couple of days after that. And then, uh, the, for, the fourth, uh, in that time frame, Ziuar Mirman Betova, 
um, was another activist who was detained in her home. Um, to one degree or another, all of these individuals um, have uh, spoken out uh, about Karakal Pakistan and, and in particular about uh, voiced concerns about the proposed constitutional changes. Um, so Kazakh authorities are now, you know, they, they've all, they've been, their detention has been sanctioned by, by courts and it's expected that there will be an extradition request, uh, from Uzbek authorities, um, for their extradition to stand, uh, charges, stand trial in, in Uzbekistan. Um, they've all applied for asylum here in Kazakhstan. They, they, I should mention they've all been living in Kazakhstan for many years. They have families here. You know, we know that one of them is working as a cardiologist here. And so, you know, there are concerns again with respect to non-refoulement and concerns about the, you know, uh, the possible, you know, politically motivated prosecutions they face and, and, and concerns about ill treatment and torture that, that, uh, could happen if, if extradited. So Human Rights Watch has called uh, for them not to be uh, forcibly returned to Uzbekistan. Um, so it remains to be seen now what will what will happen with them. Um, there is a process or, or you know a procedure that Kazakh authorities are now following in terms of what happens to people who are detained, um, who are wanted by another state. But we you know we call on on Kazakh officials, Kazakh government to you know to respect. The, the principle of non-refoulement in this case to give, you know, to give careful consideration to their asylum claims and, and to respect international human rights law in, in their cases. Um, so we're keeping a close eye um, on, on the developments. Their trial, you know, their, right now it's sort of investigation stage if they're, they're just in detention waiting for their developments in their cases, as far as I know. Thank you. In the time we have left, I want to look at the Karakalpaks. You know, from the term, uh, from the point of view of them being, you know, an ethnic minority in Uzbekistan. Oh, um, you guys have been following the region again for a long time. I certainly have too. Uh, the Karakalpaks have, have had complaints about their treatment for many, many years. Certainly, health issues because they're located so close to the Aral Sea. But I mean, there was claims when Karimov was president that there was forced sterilization of women um, out there. So it's uh, they've always felt like the the ethnic Uzbek government. Um, was was against them, and but they're not the only group that that's run into this, right? Uh, even though you have President Mirziyoyev, to his credit, right before the protests broke out, just days before the protests came out, uh, I think the day before, he said, "I am a son of Karakal Pakistan," and to be clear, he has paid much more attention to Karakal Pakistan than Karimov ever did. But are are ethnic minorities treated the same? Uh, the, do the Karakal Paks have a legitimate complaint? When they say that we're discriminated against by the Uzbek government, and, and are they the only group that is discriminated against, or is this generally the way that the Uzbek's Uzbek government, anyway, looks at, at minorities? Steve, well, no, thanks for the question, Bruce. I think it's something that you know the the these tumultuous protests for many. I think they brought into view Uzbekistan's multi-ethnic character for the first time, and sort of underlined that. Ethnic minority issues, just like in every other country, exist in Uzbekistan. It's something we haven't paid uh, nearly enough attention to. And what I found really interesting when I was doing research after these events is I, I discovered that the UN Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which is we would call the CERD, actually put out recommendations, reviewed Uzbekistan's compliance with that international human rights treaty just two years before these events. And they really 
they, they criticized Uzbekistan's government for failing to collect statistics on a regular basis on all aspects of, of life, you know, whether it's the criminal justice system, we have no demographic or ethnographic breakdown of by ethnicity who are in prisons in Uzbekistan. We don't know enough about employment statistics. And, and pointedly, interestingly, at the time, the Uzbek delegation said to the UN, well, we don't have any complaints on file of racial discrimination. And to that, the committee said, the absence of those complaints is not proof <laughs> that there is no racial discrimination or ethnic minority discrimination in Uzbekistan. And they called on Uzbekistan to take that into account as they prepare for their their census, which, by the way, there has been no census in Uzbekistan since 1989. And so I think actually these issues around Karakalpakstan in 2022, they should be a, a stark reminder to the Uzbek government that you can't ignore these issues and, you know, in preparing for this census, which has been long, long awaited. And Karimov, you know, really avoided doing this, I think, to continue in many ways just the Soviet Druzhba uh, Naroda friendship of people's policy towards ethnic minorities, which was to largely sort of erode and erase many, many of their distinctions. But I, I think that's something that the Uzbek government needs to, to address. So it's absolutely true that ethnic minorities do face uh, everyday discrimination. And I don't mean to say that, that majority ethnic Uzbeks don't face many of the same issues, but it's important that we discuss these things when it comes to Tajiks who make up millions, and we don't know how many because there's been no census. Ethnic Tajiks in Uzbekistan uh, often raise these issues, but again, it's very sensitive to, to talk about these things. We also know, obviously, about uh, Russians, Tatars, Kyrgyz, uh, so many other groups that have faced this. So I think these events, in a way, again, strangely to say this to the Uzbek government, but this could be, in a way, helpful for uh, formulating a policy that actually deals with human rights and ethnic minority rights in the future, or that that would be the hope. Great. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, and Mira, let me ask you then, uh, and, and feel free to comment on any aspect of uh, Uzbek government's policy on ethnic minorities. But, um, you know, to keep it, to get back to Karakalpakstan a little bit, uh, is, is it clear at all to what, what percentage of the people who are detained, who were detained, do we know are, are actually ethnic Karakalpaks? Uh, or is, is it even, is that such information even available? I am not aware of any information of that nature. I, it hasn't, I've not seen any statements to that effect. I mean, we don't even know how many people are in detention. Um, so I, you know, I think that that's a good question for the authorities and one that I hope that they will uh, take heed of is that they need to be more forthcoming about what's going on with the investigations, um, in particular, uh, how many are, are under arrest, uh, what charges uh, individuals are facing, who it is that, uh, you know, are being targeted with the more serious uh, crimes committed allegedly so you know that's that's that that's one for the Uzbek government to answer can i can i just add one uh, somewhat anecdotal uh, sort of comment about um discrimination or or let's say this feeling of, of being sort of persecuted as a as a Karakalpak minority i was just talking to uh, one of the diaspora activists here and uh, he noted that you know even though 21 people died in the events in Karakalpakstan on July 1st and 2nd, that Uzbekistan didn't have a day of mourning. And that really, you know, sat with me. It's, it's true. You know, there wasn't a sort of nationwide acknowledgement of the loss of life that happened. 
Um, and I, you know, I just, I, I think that's important for Uzbek officials to hear is that something just as, as, as meaningful as just pausing to recognize the loss of life in Karkal Pakistan and of Karkal Paks, um, would have gone a long way in the Karkal Pakistan community at large to acknowledge the suffering that took place. And, and the absence of that has been noticed and felt by Karkopaks in and outside of Karkal Pakistan. So it's, it is, it's not, you know, it doesn't speak to discrimination, uh, perhaps the, the way that you were asking earlier, but I think it is on a, just on a human level. You know, it's, it was a good question. Why, why wasn't there a day of mourning? I don't know. Um, but something like that would have, um, I think been welcomed by the Karkal Pakistan community that I, that I'm in touch with for sure. Okay. Thanks. You know, it is time to wrap it up. And, and of course I should, uh, make clear too um, that uh, you know, we have been talking about a little bit about the Uzbek government's treatment of ethnic ethnic minorities. Uh, they, they, they are no not that much different in, in compared to some of the other Central Asian states in the way they treat them. It's not like Uzbekistan has been the worst offender in the region or anything like that. But do you have any any uh, any last comments um, about this topic, Mira? I'll start with you. I think it's important to acknowledge this happened at a time, the, the Karakal Pakistan events, the use of lethal force, the deaths and the horrific injuries took place at a time when, when Uzbekistan is pursuing, you know, has, has stated that it's pursuing human rights and, and political reforms. And, and, you know, with that sort of reform agenda comes uh, increased uh, scrutiny and increased accountability. And it really is important that the Uzbek government show that it is serious about its human rights commitments and that it's not just paying lip service when it talks about human rights, but it's actually committed to holding accountable the people that are responsible for the death and uh, the deaths, excuse me, and, and injuries that took place in Karakal, Pakistan. Um, and so, you know, four months have passed. We've talked a lot about some of the problems uh, with the investigation so far, the concerns about uh, the violations that took place on those two days. And it's really now on the government to show, you know, its partners and, and the international community at large that it's not just talking the talk, but that it takes, you know, the commitments that it has taken upon itself seriously. And this is a real test. You know, it can't, um, it's a real test. I'll, st I'll stop there. That, that people are paying attention to how the outcome of, of the investigations that are underway and whether or not it will lead to accountability and whether, you know, we can talk about Uzbekistan as a country that does take seriously its international human rights commitments or one that just pays lip service to them. Okay, thank you. And, and Steve, you get the last word. <laughs> well, thanks, Bruce. You know, I, I'd say, I, again, I, I agree with all the due process concerns. And, and as Mira pointed out, I mean, Uzbekistan is on the UN Human Rights Council. It does have a responsibility to meet its obligations. And, you know, I think initially they need to release, immediately release a name of the of the dead, the names of those who died. As, you know, Mira said, I think the lack of mourning, the lack of acknowledgement is painful for people. And I, I think that's, at a minimum, we need to see that a full accounting of those who lost their lives. Again, a, a reckoning with that because we, there needs to be some consistency about about that. We still don't have that final number. We need to know more about the fate of those detained, about the charges brought against them, and where those investigations are heading. I would like to, I hope that the Uzbek government will respond to 
human rights watches calls and the calls of others to invite international experts, at least hold briefings that include international experts, um, discussions with the parliamentary commission. And again, you know, thinking about the broader, deeper issues that, that, that the UN raised two years ago, as Uzbekistan moves towards this census, I think the government should acknowledge the recommendations made by the UN, which included, for example, recommendations that there needs to be a guarantee of the right of education in Karakalpak language, and, and for that matter, other ethnic minority languages, such as Tajik in Uzbekistan. And that's something that the government can do, it should do, and it should acknowledge the need to collect this type of information in prisons and education and employment. And that's, again, one way um, that Uzbekistan can try to not return to this this type of violence. And, and, and lastly, I'll just say that the NGO decree that the government introduced in the summer, which forces independent NGOs to include government actors, government bodies in their projects, should really be disbanded. Not only does it prevent and, and hinder the independence of independent civil society and human rights work in Uzbekistan, but specifically, it would make it impossible for ethnic minority groups, Karakalpak organizations, for example, to do work that's independent. And that's what we need in Uzbekistan if it's truly moving towards reform is independent civil society. So we should get rid of that NGO decree. Um, I really hope that will be disbanded. A number of NGOs have raised it recently um, in public, which is very commendable and courageous. So with that, thanks for holding this conversation, Bruce. Yeah, and thank you for bringing up that talk topic about the NGOs. That's uh, that is also important. And uh, you know, thank you both. Thank you, Mira, and thank you, Steve, for uh, being guests on the program and discussing this topic today. Uh, and a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or Central Asia in Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye bye.